Welcome to Line of Credit, a podcast by Merrick's Capital where we bring you insights from across the private credit space in agriculture, commercial real estate, infrastructure, energy and more. Your host is Adrian Redlick, Executive Chairman and Chief Investment Officer at Merrick's Capital. Our guest this episode is Peter Crinis, Chief Commercial Officer of Hello World Travel and Managing Director at Anchor Consultancy Co. Uh, welcome, everyone. This is Adrian Redlick, the Chief Investment Officer of Merrick's Capital, and welcome to today's edition of Line of Credit. And today, I'm very excited to have Peter Crennis with me. Pete is a hotel guru. And so, welcome, Pete. Thank you, Adrian. Uh, lovely to be here and uh, lovely to be part of the show. So, Pete and I have been working closely together with a, a team of other experts that we've um, brought together to help us deliver the Melbourne Place Hotel, which is you know, one of the loans in our portfolio where you know the, the borough unfortunately hit on hard times and we've had to step in and, and finish the building and it's truly one of Melbourne's unique independent hotels being delivered and who better than to have as part of our team than probably um, one of the leaders of independent hotels in Australia over the last couple of decades. So Pete, before we sort of kick off and we talk about Melbourne Place, we talk about the market short term, long term, maybe you can just give listeners a bit of background on your history. Sure. No, I'd love to. Um, I've been in hotels for, for 30 years, sort of came out of uni and um, very typically wanted to work in hospitality and then travel, but never traveled, just stayed in hospitality. Worked for 10 years for Hyatt International, both here and overseas, primarily in, in the rooms division part of hotels, so providing um, the room services. And then in the mid-90s, was sort of lured across to, to Crown, you know, Crown Melbourne in 1995, was obviously conceived by Lloyd Williams and uh, South Bank opened in 97 and I joined uh, that company so shortly thereafter. One hotel at the time, probably one of the best constructed hotels to, to this day, um, the amount of effort that went into that hotel. Um, and then went on the journey with Crown, really, um, as we expanded our, our hospitality business or their hospitality business now over many years that included, you know, expanding the, the South Bank site with three properties, expanding into Macau uh, with a, a, a series of different hotels and gaming and non-gaming experiences. And then I took over the food and beverage and retail businesses of Crown, um, which sort of culminated in um, the development of, um, of Crown Sydney at Barangaroo, that project. So that's sort of been my career. And then in the last sort of two years, I've, I've consulted for different hospitality groups, different styles of, of hotel, different styles of food and beverage. And now, um, you know, I've obviously been working on the, on the Melbourne Place project, you know, which I think is a fantastic project for Melbourne. Uh, I'm really glad that's going to be completed and, um, and optimised. But I've recently taken up a position as Chief Commercial Officer at, at Hello World Group, which listed company consolidating travel to a you know, very, very large network of travel providers, travel professionals across Australia. Yes, I think you're in a really unique position at the moment, obviously, to to talk to travel and lodging as well. I might just recap Melbourne Place um, for listeners because it's obviously for our investors, it's it's a point of interest. And then we won't dwell too much on Melbourne Place, but we'll we'll talk about the industry in general. Yeah, Melbourne Place for those of you in Melbourne near the corner of Little Collins and Russell Street, 190 room hotel under construction. I think it's going to be 14 stories, and um, we're at level seven due to open next April, May. And so when we went into it, we were providing a loan of approximately $105 million. The group, development group, um, had some internal problems unrelated to the, the project and was effectively 
bankrupt and put into administration. We took over the, the project and, and one of the things that all our investors will know is we pride on ourselves on the ability to step into any project and, and take it over. And so one of the things is about the internal team, but it's also the partnerships we have around us and people like Peter and, and Darren Brosnahan in, in the case of Melbourne Place and Tristan and others who are helping us deliver one of the unique assets. Um, so the hotel, when we went into it, was valued at $155 million. As with all valuations these days, once we deliver it, there's lots of conjecture. Is it worth 170 Is it worth 135 You know, it's all in the delivery and the uniqueness of the, the asset. But um, I think you know, we'll have to end up putting $125 million of principal, give or take, into the asset and have an asset that's worth you know, hopefully materially more than that. And you know, it's one of the things as a, a senior lender, you always got a lot of equity that's sort of as a buffer. And unfortunately for the yeah, borrowers and the sponsors, they you know, will lose in the order of probably $30 million you know, in terms of the delivery of this. So there's a, there's a buffer there that was you know, the, the equity that was invested. And the other unique thing about it is ADCO, who one of Australia's leading builders, sort of priced this job pre to the um, dramatic increase in construction costs. And so it's a very valuable build in the sense that to replace the building today would cost a lot more if we started. So we've got a good head start and we have to make sure we deliver it and having people like Peter and, and Darren and, and others, and as well, Tracy Atherton, who was running Jack Loeb Hotel, who's going to be the, the hotel manager um, of a truly independent hotel. So um, maybe it's worth, Peter, as we sort of kick in and talk about Melbourne Place, but talk more about independent hotels. There are not many of them. And it sort of strikes me as we've been doing a lot of analysis on potentially outsourcing the hotel to operators and others. And you seem to give away a lot to outsource, um, but it's almost driven by financiers in a in a funny way, as opposed to you know, or, or owners, as opposed to people who really want to get in and, and run a hotel. Maybe you can talk about the benefits of independent versus the operators. Sure, sure. Yeah, look, obviously, if you're oper- operating independently, you know, you, you're there's probably a twenty percent at least differential on you know going into a, a hotel management agreement because of you know obviously the fees, uh, what you have to pay to distribute the product, brand standards, um, etc. So you know, I, I'm I love independent and I love operating and I love an owner who you know is is strong enough to be able to to do that. No, not not all owners want to do that, and not all investors probably want to do that either. It's it's probably is an easier path to go down the the hotel management agreement in in some respects, but you do it at a cost because no one's going to do that without. Um, as I said, you know, there's probably twenty percent you're going to leave on the table or you're going to pass on to the operator. But you know, if you can operate, um, then you should operate in my view because you know financially it's, it's a much better position. Uh, and what I'd also say is in key cities, you know, Melbourne. Sydney, Brisbane, etc. These are cities that are, you know, very you know, typically have been very, very strong in terms of their occupancy. You know, Melbourne and, and, and Sydney in particular, you know, driven by, you know, strong events, very, very good airlift into those cities. And also they haven't, you know, really been oversupplied in my view. I mean, there's a lot of talk about oversupply um, over the last 20 years, but I've never really believed that. I mean, Crown started with 400 rooms and ended up with 1,600 rooms, you know, running in excess of 90% pre-COVID. So the market can certainly take up that supply as it grows. So my point on that really is, you know, these cities will 
we'll be able to produce really good uh, yields, very, very good occupancies because they are, you know, there's very, very good tourism, good events. And as I said, the, the airlift um, has been, been very, very strong, particularly Melbourne and Sydney where those two airports um, have been able to attract more international carriers and bring more, more, more and more people to Australia, which was, you know, you know one of the top destinations, particularly pre-COVID. Obviously now we're still we're getting back, we're trying to fit back into the boot that we had prior, but you know, we certainly we're on, we're on that journey and getting closer. So we'll, we'll come back to the metrics of where the market, you know, where we see it trading at the moment, but just want to dig in a little bit about that differential between independent versus hotel management agreements, so the, the big operators. And many listeners may not know that most of the big hotel chains, when you see them running a hotel, they don't in fact own the building. In fact, they've moved away from that. They in fact own almost no buildings whatsoever. They just run a service in terms of to run the hotel to varying degrees. And there, for many of those hotel operators, you can sort of, there's a smorgasbord of offerings that you can actually get people to provide from running the hotel in full to providing different elements of services, you know, from booking engines, probably at the lightest level, all the way through to the full operation. But in almost all cases, they tend to just charge a a couple of percent management fee in terms of the the value of the asset and then take a share of of profit. But with limited accountability, to be honest, of the P&L, you know, the profit and loss actually being delivered. Yeah, you know, obviously they share in the profit, but there's not much downside for them in terms of risk. The risk actually sits with generally the the property owner who sort of yeah, put all put all the working capital and, and certainly into the, the property. And so it, it has been a really stark, I think, analysis where you can see, you know, that the earnings, potential earnings are 20% higher as an independent operator. But clearly you have to have people such as yourself and, and the rest of the team that actually have spent decades running hotels that can, you know, put in place those booking engines, the chefs, the food and beverage, running the end-to-end elements of hotels. So there's not many people with that that level of expertise. But the earnings are dramatically different on, on these things. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, the, you know the, the hotel management agreements and, you know, I'm not advocating against them. I'm, I'm saying that, you know, it really, if you have an ability to operate you should operate certainly financially. There's, there's there's obviously the percentage off the top, percentage off the bottom, but there is also transactional costs that go through their particular systems that on an ongoing basis you know, adds to this this twenty percent loyalty programs, et cetera, et cetera, brand standard technical services, et cetera. So whilst you know that's you know, if if you don't want to operate, you know they're providing you know, you know a fantastic service, but it does come at a cost. So as I said, particularly in these major cities where there is strong tourism, strong airlift, I'm very much, if it was my capital, I would be advocating for an independent hotel and finding the right operators to operate the property. And distribution's changed, you know, so 25, 30 years ago, people would ring, make bookings. They still ring and make bookings, believe it or not. But the way you distribute the product now, the way you amplify the product through digital channels, through social media, you know, that, that can be done in a very, very different way. Um, you know, we were taking fax and telex reservations when I first started, if people can remember that. But now, you know, the world's changed. So the way in which you amplify, advertise, market your property is very, very different uh, to how it was 25 years ago. But having said that, if you had a 200 room at a hotel, it's a very, very simple distribution, sorry, a 200 room hotel at an airport. It's a very, very different uh, distribution model to one that's in the city 
city positioned between, you know, Little Collins in Russell Street, you know, 194 rooms. It's going to be a property that is going to attract a very, very strong leisure market and it will build its own social presence around that. So the way it distributes will be very, very different. So that's why, you know, you don't need to brand that X or Y uh, hotel chain. And in fact, it's probably stronger to be independent, have your own brand and your own reasons why people want to go and stay there. Yeah, there's been quite a few new hotels come to market in Melbourne and, and you touched on it earlier about supply demand. There's some coming out. Um, our listeners will know we've ref- we've financed the acquisition of the Lindrum Hotel by time and place. That will no longer be a hotel. You know, there's sort of always the, the recycling going on and, and where the the best use is. But there's very few independent hotels in, in all those numbers. Yeah. Uh, and it's hard to really think of many new independent hotels that have that uniqueness that are truly iconic Melbourne, Sydney or wherever they they happen to be positioned. So something um, that we certainly bought into when we were just financier and obviously really sort of living and breathing it as we're sort of in the deed of company arrangement and delivering this asset through and probably will be to ultimately what the new owners are and there's quite a few that sort of in dialogue. And But one of the interesting things again about independent hotels also is probably the whole ecosystem, so food and beverage, for instance. So, yeah, with Melbourne Place, um, some 40% of the turnover will come from food and beverage, which is probably more than you know, 60, 70% more than your traditional stock standard hotel. Yeah, I think that and that, that's the key point about an independent hotel has an opportunity to be able to joint venture with, you know, particularly interesting food and beverage options. So, you know, I don't want to speak ill of the chain hotels, but they tend to be a little bit more typical in their food and beverage approach. So I think what we're trying to achieve here and, you know, we certainly something that I was very keen when I was at Crown is who can you partner with? How can you use their IP? Obviously, we're, it's our, it's the, it's the hotel's capital, but you're getting far more interesting food and beverage options that are destinational to the local market, but another reason why you might stay in that particular property and another reason why you know you, you might pay a higher rate to stay in a property that has a series of different experiences that are above what you would typically get in a normal hotel environment that doesn't think like this. And if you think about how that amplifies, you're taking photos, you're expressing your experience on social media. And I think that just adds a lot of inertia to wanting for people wanting to come and experience that particular property, you know, irrespective of your your, your relative age group. So I think this hotel will skew from a food and beverage point of view maybe potentially a little bit a little bit younger, particularly with the, our rooftop. Uh, we've got a rooftop bar, a rooftop experience, but we also have an events area and we are looking at a you know, very, very interesting restaurant and bar offering uh, on the sort of Russell Street frontage. So it will cater for some different groups, but it will feel you know very, very different to uh, some of the hotels in, a, in its competitive set. So maybe we just change tack a little bit and talk about the market. Obviously, each hotel has its unique offering, but they're all still subject to the vagaries of lodging and, and tourism, we know looking at you know the STR data that we're now back at sort of somewhere between 85 and 90% of the volume, pre-COVID volumes. Um, so we're not back above that. Probably the biggest data point is, you know, the international tourism is down still dramatically. I think we're still 30 percent below and just to give you a sense of volume where that's probably coming from is largely chinese and travelers chinese travelers were 15 to 20 percent of all travelers to australia pre-covid 
they're now 3% um, because Australia's not on the approved travel list. I guess we're all hopeful that will shift and, and change. You know, we're seeing things like barley exports and potential for our wine exports and relations thawing with China, but it's clearly an, an integral piece in terms of that, that traffic. We certainly see it as ups, upside in the sense that I think that will thaw and that will be a bit of a boon to the the sector, but how are you how are you seeing volumes in general in travel at the moment through your different lenses? Yeah, I mean, firstly, the good news is the um, approved destination status for Australia was just lifted by China, so that okay. you know, that's only happened in the last couple of days. So obviously, our podcast has made that happen. So that's good. <laughs> so tick tick that. That's uh, one thing already done. So well done. Um, line of credit. Yeah, I mean, occupancy sort of in the mid sixties. Just look at Melbourne City, the two major capital cities. You know, they were, you know, mid eighties to high eighties uh, in the in you know, pre-COVID in the peak period. So there's a, there's a way to go. Obviously, domestic has been much, much stronger because people have um, pivoted to domestic travel both in the, the main capital cities but also regionally. I mean, regional regional has been the big winner off a, a long a long period of being not, not being able to sustain a lot of growth and not being able to achieve good, good occupancy. But you're 100% right. The international travel, international is lagging well behind domestic. The domestic uplift has happened a lot quicker. So there's a, there's a few factors there. Obviously, the amount of air, airplanes coming into Australia, and you know that's there's been a lot of recent news about that. Um, we need all of the all of the carriers to get back to their their maximum daily ins and outs. We also need the Chinese carriers to to come back, especially the main carriers, China Southern, et cetera, et cetera. So that's still that's going to take a little bit of time. Obviously, the status changing is going to help, but it's going to take a little bit of time. And obviously, the expense to fly at the moment. Everybody uh, would would be feeling that, particularly if you're traveling internationally. It's it has become expensive, which I think is a bigger issue inbound rather than outbound. Because in terms of travel, outbound travel is is very very strong. People in Australia are you know are renowned travelers, and they are certainly traveling in great numbers at the moment. You know, I don't think it's it's a great time to be a travel agent to be a professional travel person at the moment. I think people are struggling to have enough staff to service that market. But irrespective of that it's very very strong there's a lot of people traveling a lot of people traveling uh, in first and business a lot of people going back to cruising so that has returned not quite to 2019 levels but very very close and as we go through the the, the rest of this year it, it feels like it will get back and if not uh, surpass uh, where it was so obviously higher price less tickets but still volumes are very very strong so I think it looks very very positive um, in terms of the the travel and the travel sector but I think inbound international is where that's where the network needs to be done so hopefully as there is more planes flying, uh, airfares normalize back to similar levels to, to pre-COVID, then we will see travel from you know all of the different regions, but particularly China, Southeast Asia, I think is very, very important to us, um, particularly that China market, because it's put a lot of back pressure on, on occupancy and rate uh, in, in the major cities. You know, pre-COVID, there was about 1.6 million Chinese traveling to Australia. You know, we're probably, you know, two or 300,000, if not a little bit more now. So there's a fair way to go to get back to where we were. China's clearly got its own economic issues at the moment. So there's sort of an element of ability to travel where the economy is, but clearly exciting news, which I 
wasn't on top of there in terms of being back on the approved list. It'll be a, a major shift, I, I think, um, in terms of that that activity. But I just want to touch on the outbound. We've the outbound's almost had that effect of you know people in the big cities, Melbourne, Sydney in particular traveling to subsidies or, or regional and we can see that in the data can't we with Revpar or you know revenue per available room up at 40 percent in places like brisbane gold coast hobart adelaide perth so they're actually seeing significantly higher pricing for rooms whereas melbourne sydney is maybe only five ten percent higher than pre-COVID sort of levels which is probably more a function of inbound traffic and business traffic to those markets. Yeah, I agree. I think and if you look at, you know, search flight searches, um, there's a good stat that's showing that, you know, domestic uh, searches each month is sort of between 6 and 8% higher than it was pre-COVID. So people are searching domestically for flights, particularly to regional and you know, regional regional is not necessarily um, you know, right in the outback. Regional is is outside of the major cities. You know, people are doing those trips but I think you know that that'll I think that'll steady. I think international will continue to to be quite strong. But people are certainly searching for travel around Australia at much greater levels than they were pre-COVID. I think that's which is interesting. Which I think is good. You know, beds very very well for hoteliers across both those markets, both the key uh, city markets, but also the regional markets. So it's an interesting time when we have the cost of buildings going up significantly. We know to bring a new hotel to market, it costs 30, maybe 40% more than it did pre-co, just build costs, consulting costs, time, cost of money to do all that. And so when we look at new hotels, sort of construction of new hotels, the price point is going to have to go up dramatically. And we're kind of questioning how that's going to, to happen. Obviously, we've got a number of hotels we're financing that are recently completed or been in the portfolio for a while and obviously Melbourne Place which has the luxury of a sort of pre-price escalation construction contract with Adcov who have been incredibly um, good in terms of their delivery despite it being a pain trade for them obviously you know the cost of have risen dramatically it's um, one of those construction contracts that you never wish upon someone but um, you know they're doing a good job delivering the actual asset you know, how are we going to see new stock come to market if it costs 30 percent more and labor probably in hotels probably cost you 30 40 percent more too which is probably the biggest bottleneck do you think the consumer you know to justify future new developments can carry that cost mm, I, I think it's I think it's it's tough. I think it's really tough to build uh, a five hundred room five star hotel. I, I just don't, I think the economics are going to be hard. You know, you're going to have to be as efficient as you can when you build it. it you know, it's probably going to be a mixed use um, because you need to you know work out other ways of making that building work as hard as you possibly can for yourself. If if that's the case, um, to me, conversion conversion of property is something that we you know we, we need to all consider. You know, if if the bones of the building have been constructed, plant, you know, a whole the whole back of house is already there. You know, can you convert a building that may have been an office, it may have been apartment, it may have been whatever is that is that a pathway we should look at and certainly on smaller scale i've seen that 
happen uh, where you know older properties might have been a motel that is converted. Um, I think that's 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 a, a faster way home rather than complete greenfield site, which is you know as you described, you know there's, there's a lot of there's a bit of headwind there <laughs> in lots of different areas. Cost. I think the staffing issue will will resolve. I think that's starting to get better. Experienced staff is is a different story. It's going to take some time to to train and I guess optimize that new staff. Yeah, for me it's about conversion. I think you know we need to look at perhaps older properties. They could have been hotels. They could have been lots of different things. How can we take that that asset and then convert it into a hospitality asset that has vibrant restaurant and bar, good room product, you know, is independent, obviously, as we've discussed, uh, and then can be distributed. So that, I think that's I think that's the pathway for me in the certainly in the next you know five or ten years. It can be interesting to see we're having lots of dialogue with with people about buying older office buildings um, that can be can be converted. Obviously, there's the likes of the Capella, which was an old office building, a beautiful sandstone building in, in Sydney that's been converted. And um, But you know, reportedly, and don't really have any direct insight into that, but reportedly they've spent $350 or $360 million on a building. And most of that went into the, the actual redevelopment as opposed to the, the license or the purchase of the building. I think it's a long-term lease with the government. And it has the same number of rooms as Melbourne Place. So, you know, sort of central CBD, yeah, the cost to deliver, it's not three times as much, but it's not that far off three times as much. And so you sort of look at it and say, it's not that simple, beautiful, incredible, beautiful old buildings, not that simple to convert. And it took it took a long time. It's certainly a beautiful experience to stay there and, and something suggests to, as you know, as one of the independent groups out there, um, sort of compelled to have a number through Asia, but driven you know by a big family, Singaporean family that's um, really passionate about it. Uh, interesting experience. Tell me, listeners always, everyone loves to travel. Peter, what are your favourite hotels? Top three in Australia and top three internationally. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I think Cabela. Just on the, to finish off on Cabela, that's um, it's a passion project. It's 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 a beautifully executed hotel uh, in terms of what they've spent on it. So um, good on them for doing that. But um, not my investment. So <laughs> in Australia, my top three hotels. Uh, I do get asked this question quite a lot. Look, I think you know Crown Tower Sydney, and people are going to say you had your hands all over it. That's why you're saying that. But I think there's something about the aspect of that property, um, its view, you know, it's it's probably one of the last hotels like that, I think, to be built in Australia for all the reasons we talked about. So that's a beautiful experience. It's the right scale to me. It's 350 rooms. It's got great food and beverage. It's not 2,000 rooms. It's not 50 rooms. So I think that to me is, is you know, it's in my top three. I'm not going to say it's number one or number two and number three, but it's in the, the top few. And then, then I think about other places in Australia, to me, then I would probably go regionally. There's some smaller hotels regionally that I think are are, are really good, are really strong. I really like I like Walgan Valley. Um, I think it's difficult to get to. Uh, I like the experience once you're there. I think it's it's an interesting interesting product. And then I think in Victoria, I love going down towards the Great Ocean Road. I, I think I love that. I love both sides, but I particularly love that. So there's a few hotels around Lawn, small hotels that I, that I also like. So they're the ones in Victoria I like and in Australia. But there's a lot, you know. So I'm really, I I, I feel. I feel You're guilty. sitting on the fence there. You don't want to name names. You don't want it might leave like, someone out. Yeah, um, I might. And, might have know, to push I, you a bit harder. You might have to. But internationally, <laughs> let's go there quickly. Internationally, I love the Mandarin Oriental in Hong Kong. So that hotel was built in 1966. It was converted um, or was redone in the 
late 80s, early 90s, and it had a subsequent uh, renovation a few years ago. To me, that was the epitome of incredible service, great views of Hong Kong Harbour. There's so many parts of that property from a food and beverage point of view, from an experience point of view, and the way it connects to the whole landmark centre. I have such you know incredible memories of that property, particularly from a service point of view. The service is incredibly on point. I think Mandarin, well, certainly five years ago when I was spending a bit of time over that way, they were incredible. I love Crosby Street in New York, obviously in Soho. Again, it's a unique property. I really love going there. I love that part of New York and I love going to New York. And then in Shanghai, there's the height on the Bund. Uh, I haven't been there for a very long time, but it's a bit of a weird choice. But I think that hotel, the, the hard asset was really well executed. Great service. Probably one of the best hotels I think Hyatt did, particularly Hyatt International, who um, I used to work for. So I think they're, they're the three that are off the top of my head, which probably one or two might be obvious, but the other one probably isn't to some people. Captain's Bar at Mandarin Oriental, you can't really beat the ambience and the experience there. Um no, and they've got a great cafe, Cafe Cosette. There's a couple of different F&B experiences there that are really, really interesting. And just sitting there, it's one of those hotels. I like to go and sit in the lobby of a hotel, have a drink and watch what happens. I think that to me is a really interesting experience in a, in a five-star hotel. Now, there's there's a lot of other hotels in the world. So Raffles Singapore, again, that's another one. I think that conversion of a historic hotel was fantastic. So it's one of the interesting things about many of the great hotels is, as you say, the food and beverage offering or wanting to sort of hang out in the lobby or the bars. That is something which isn't sort of that present in Australia, I'd say, as a, a general rule. Obviously, Crown, for a whole range of reasons, is a whole complex. People t- tend to hang out there. But this sort of lifestyle, I just want to talk a little about the lifestyle hotel, which is, you know, is clearly the more vibrant hotel that's being talked about. It's what we're obviously um, putting in place in, in Melbourne place, but maybe just talk about that style of hotel that's really taken off over the last decade or, or two. Yeah, I think if you think of, um, you know, there's, there's a lot around the world. There's, you know, there's ACE, proper hotels, you know, if you've, if you've experienced those um, in the States. In, in fact, I think in LA in particular, there's, there's a lot of lifestyle hotels that have been, that are independent or small groups that, are, that have executed this really, really well. So, and there's a, there's a skew towards very interesting interior design and art. Not that the art has to be, you know, ridiculously expensive or, you know, very, very precious, but it's well expressed. The design of the property is interesting. The food and beverage then becomes, as I said before, very destinational. So uh, it engages the local community. The local community wants to come in there, drink, eat, have a good time. And at the same time, people want to stay there because they know that those experiences exist in the hotel they're going to stay at. So that to me is the definition of a lifestyle hotel. You can also work there. I think you'll find in a lot of these hotels, to your point, there are areas where you can uh, sit, work, do a Zoom, have a drink, which is a really sort of a different way of working um, and probably, you know, very much more how people are tending to work now, less office bound, far more mobile. Um, and then if you're staying in that property, doing a bit of work, having a meeting, lunch, and then then after hours, you know, it's a place where you can have fun as well. So that to me epitomizes lifestyle and that's far more interesting. And it's something that a lot of people are going to, they're going to post that on their social media. They're going to, they're going to want to go there with 
with your friends. And I think that actually helps amplify and I guess resonate why that's a better place to stay. So I think A started that or other people started. I think Proper does it really well. And there's a whole series of other ones in, in LA and around the world that are, are, are definitely pushing that that particular way of running a hotel. There's, there's a couple in Sydney, but obviously, you know, we think Melbourne Place will be, um, you know, be one of the better ones in the world. Yeah, it was interesting when I, I met you uh, overseas and, as you know, s- took my 20-year-old daughter and so looking for a particular product and stayed at the Hoxton Hotel in, in Paris and was actually absolutely blown away by the number of young business people just working from there all all day. I mean, it's very much in that sort of tech advertising precinct of, of Paris. But when I walked in, just the dozens and dozens of people sitting around with the laptops and, and sort of that environment where they want to go to work. So I'm not sure if everyone wants to go back to the office. Obviously, you know, we've lent against quite a few offices and we've had, we've done many podcasts and discussions around office, but what sort of clear is it, I guess, as the urban density increases, um, some of the great hotels, they're a good place for people to, um, to go and, and it certainly works in, in places. And I, I think the the turnover, you know, sort of the coffee turnover during the day and morning, and then the sort of margarita turnover as it sort of hit six, seven, eight o'clock at night was quite remarkable. To yeah, uh, to watch. I, I was in, and, and a great example was that I was in the the proper in downtown LA last year. They were filming an Adidas commercial in the lobby while people were working around it. I remember 25 years ago, you know, working at Crown and we did a, a commercial for a particular brand in the lobby and um, the whole lobby had to shut down. But the whole ethos of this ad was let's just do it with everybody there because that's the that's the set that we want, the people that are working and, and, and drinking and enjoying that lobby experience uh, in that hotel are really our customers as well. So I, I, think, I think it's not always like that and not all the customers are 25, but that particular style of hotel, that lifestyle hotel, that independent hotel is a far more interesting place to go and stay and enjoy yourself. Well, Pete, thanks for your time today. We've sort of uh, used up our allowable time, but um, it's great to um, have your support and insight as we um, try and deliver this hotel. And yeah, we've got you and the team. There's a few others where we're looking at to, to finance, but as we always say to all our investors, it's critical as a lender you have to be prepared to sometimes step in and and run the asset that's the best way of of protecting value and and delivering and we went yeah we were quite sort of ambitious in pursuing hotel lending in the middle of COVID because we sort of obviously felt it was the the bottom of the cycle and I think we're kind of 80% of the way out the bottom but we're not quite there I guess we're hopeful in Melbourne Place and a few of our other boroughs that come mid next year we're sort of back to that fully normalised level, both in staffing and staffing costs, but also inbound activity. Yeah, no, I think I think it's um, I think it's a great project, and I think um, the future is really bright. So, uh, but thank you, thanks for having me today. I really appreciate it. Great, thanks for your time, Pete. Okay, take care. Merrick's Capital is an Australian fund manager delivering a truly differentiated multi-strategy offering with extensive investment capability and global experience spanning multiple asset classes. To learn more about Merrick's Capital, head to www.merrickscapital.com.